All the teenagers are super excited about the thought of you going to that digital landscape thing, right? They're like, oh, man. I'll tell you what, I love that last song that we just sang. I mean, just think of that. You know, holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. And then what? Open up my heart and wonder. As I was saying that, I'm thinking, man, that is my prayer for this message today. You know, we're going to go to the Word of God, and Jesus is going to talk to us about himself and about his kingdom and about his mission. God, give us eyes to see. Let us see, because if we do, you open up our eyes, we will wonder for sure. It'll be amazing. So for several weeks now, we've been studying the parables of Jesus. We're calling it, he gave us stories. And today, we're going to come to two different stories about two different people, both of whom find a treasure, which is pretty awesome. And before we just jump into the stories, what I want to do is I want to give you three treasure-finding principles, because I think this will kind of give you categories by which to move through these two stories and most clearly understand what Jesus is trying to do here. And so principle number one is that treasure is not something that is found by every person, but it is found by some people. We know that. We see that occasionally. We read that in the news, you know. We'll see that in these stories. And look, here's what else we're going to see. Sometimes it's found by people who aren't even looking for it. Like, you know, you buy an old house and you're going to remodel it before you move in and you knock down a wall and you find a treasure. Oh my goodness. You know, it's probably been there for 50 years. Like the last nine homeowners of this particular home had no idea it was there. And yet there it is. And you're just super jacked because I mean, who knew? It's awesome. So it's found sometimes by people who aren't even looking for it. But then other times it's found by people who are looking for it. There are people whose occupation is treasure hunter. Think about that. Like when you're filling out some kind of a form and it says occupation, you're like treasure hunter. That's pretty sweet if you find something. Otherwise, not so much, right? Treasure is not something that's found by every person. But it is found by some people and some who are looking for it and some who aren't. And in either case, if you're looking for it or you're not, principle number two Okay, finding treasure always fills the treasure finder with joy. Now, why is that? Because the treasure finder knows that what he has found is a treasure, and a treasure, by definition, is valuable. It's precious. It's like, oh my goodness, I know this thing is a really valuable thing, but what don't you know? How valuable is it? Which brings us to principle number three, which is that every treasure finder needs someone qualified to tell him or to tell her the value of the treasure that he or she has found. So we're going to come to these two stories, and on the front end of each, Jesus is going to tell us what the treasure is. He's like, guys, I'm not trying to hide anything from you here, so I'm going to be straight up with you, okay? So the treasure that we're going to be talking about today, not once, but twice, is the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, okay, so what is that? Because we kind of need to know what that is. Well, we talked a little bit about it last week and said that the kingdom of heaven is Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself and his mission. And it's way, way, way bigger than just taking people from earth to heaven through faith in Jesus, though it is definitely not less than that. So please don't miss that. I mean, if you're here today and you're wondering how much God loves you, wonder no more because God in the person of Jesus Christ became a man. He entered into this world. He lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. And then he suffered and died that by the power of a blood that is infinitely powerful and infinitely valuable, all of our failures, all of our selfishness, all of our mistakes, All of it might be washed away, and not just washed away, but redeemed. And in other words, God might take everything that that we've messed up and that he might, in his grace and by the power of his spirit, turn that around and begin to now use that for positive good. 
It's like this thing that was the worst possible thing that you've ever done or said or experienced. God can come because this is how great he is and take that and begin to use that as you humble yourself and submit yourself to him for the good of other people. You'll get to see it to a place perhaps where you're grateful that it happened because of all the good that came out of it. It's the power of a blood that can heal your wounds, can salve your heart. I mean, I can just keep going. So when Jesus comes and he talks about the kingdom of heaven, yes, he's talking about his love and he's talking about his grace and he's talking about his mercy and he's talking about his power and he's talking about his wisdom and he's talking about all of those things, but he's also talking about his plans and purposes for planet earth. In other words, it's not just people from earth going to heaven, it's heaven coming down to earth. Jesus is moving toward a new world in the end, a one that is full of everything that we wish this world was full of and devoid of everything that we just so desperately want to get rid of and then some. It's a big deal. So he's coming to us today and he's going, I'm going to tell you two tales, two stories, two parables, two people. They find a treasure. But let me tell you what the treasure is on the front end. The treasure represents the kingdom of God. Okay, now that you know that, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to give us its value. Oh, you're going to see these guys. They're going to find a treasure. The first one, he's not looking for it, but he finds it anyway. The second one, he's looking for it, and he finds what he's looking for. Wow. In both cases, their hearts filled with joy. And then through what Jesus has them do in the story, the man from heaven, who, if you think about it, is the only one qualified to talk to us about the value of the kingdom of heaven. The man from heaven, who is Jesus, standing on planet Earth, speaking to us is going to say, guys, let me tell you how valuable it is. Like, I I want to open up your eyes and wonder because there's nothing and no one like it. This first story we find in Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus comes and he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. So there it is. But what kind of a treasure? Well, in this case, a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found, which, you know, sounds a little bit weird to us because A, probably none of us actually owns a field, and B... If we did, we wouldn't put anything of value in it. All we're putting in the dirt are seeds or something, you know what I mean? Like footers for a building. Like, But it's not weird in Jesus' day. These people lived in, in a land that they understood for literally thousands of years had been fought over and conquered by nation after nation, by kingdom after kingdom, again and again and again and again. And no matter who the people were at various times living in this land, every time the invading army was coming, what did they do? They took all of their precious possessions, all of their treasures, and then they hid them somewhere. And they might hide them, hide them in a wall or they might go up into the mountains and hide them in a cave. They might find a tree, you know, like with a hole and hopefully a bee's nest and just drop it in and run. But a lot of times they walked out into the backyard, into their field and looked around to make sure the neighbors weren't looking. Dug a hole and dropped their most precious things in the ground, covered it up. Threw a carpet over it, I don't know, whatever. Why? (laughs) Because they're hoping they can survive the attack and, and then after the enemies roll through, they can recover their most precious possessions. That's stressful. And hey, here's the deal. Time and again, a lot of these people did not survive the attack. So they were killed in the attack or 
They were taken prisoner and, 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 and then deported to the land of the conquering nation as slaves where they lived out their lives and then their kids lived out their lives and, and maybe even their kids lived out their lives and somewhere along the way, somebody lost great-grandpa's map. You get the idea? And so it's not unusual in this part of the world, even today, for someone to be digging in a field and find buried treasure. So as Jesus is talking about this, his, his audience is like, oh yeah, that happened to my cousin. And you know, like they've read the newspaper, they've experienced, they know people who have had this experience. And he's painting the picture here of a plowman. So what is a plowman? It's somebody who's hired by the field owner to plow the field that the field owner owns. And this guy is out there in the heat of the Middle East. You know, he's, he's got his sweat pouring, his feet are probably burning in the hot clay. He's plowing row after row after row behind some stinky manure producing animal. So every once in a while, he's got to take a sidestep. You know, you get the idea. And he's just working away and he's just doing his thing. And this is his job. It's what he does all the time. And all of a sudden, the plow hits something that does not feel or sound like a rock. And because he knows everything that I've just said about treasure in the ground, he thinks to himself, hey, maybe I'm going to become that guy. I may have just found some. So he quick gets down on his hands and knees and he begins to dig, you know, in the dirt. And he comes across some kind of a container. And we don't know how long it is or wide it is or deep it is or tall it is. We don't know how big it is. We just know that when he finally unearths it and he opens it up, in there is treasure. What does he do with the treasure? Notice what it says. It says he covered it up. Okay, that kind of freaks us out a little bit, doesn't it? Like, you just want to step into the story and give the man an ethics lesson. Like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You don't own this field. This is, your treasure doesn't belong to you. Does it? Wait a second now, because we don't live there. We don't know how the rabbis have ruled on all of this. This is not unethical at all on his part. They all understood that this treasure that they come across in a field has probably been buried there hundreds, if not thousands of years. The land's been owned by 50 owners. Nobody knew it was there the whole time. He's found a treasure... He covers it up, that's okay, but he does need to buy the field to establish clear legal title to it. So what do we have so far? We've got a guy, he's not looking for treasure. He's just kind of going through his everyday life. He comes across treasure. That's amazing. His heart is filled with joy. It's awesome. So what's the treasure worth? Well, look at what he does next because Jesus is telling the story. He's like, oh, you remember what the treasure is, right? Because it's the kingdom of heaven. It's me. It's all that I am. It's, it's all that I'm up to. It's where this whole world is going. It's my plans. It's my purposes in you and for you and through you. You remember what the treasure is. Now let me show you what the treasure is worth. After this man reburies the treasure, it says, and this is hugely important, then in his joy, not begrudgingly. In his joy... He immediately is the idea, goes out and joyfully sells what? All that he has and buys the field. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the treasure, kingdom of heaven. You know what it's worth? Well, I can tell you because I'm the man from heaven. So I'm going to speak infallibly to this. It's so valuable that it's worth all that you have and all that you are. How do you like that? I think you want to argue with that. You know, you kind of want to go, well, you know, maybe that's only worth all that he had and all that he was. I mean, Tommy's a plowman. He's kind of a common dude. Like he's, 
How much did this guy have? You know, like Jesus didn't start the parable by going an equity partner who's a senior partner at a law firm and it, a medical doctor who's distinguished and all the... He's a plowman. Maybe it's worth all that he has. Jesus is like, all right, so let me give you a second story. Verse 45. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So unlike the plowman, this guy's looking for the treasure. And unlike the plowman, this guy is crazy wealthy. The picture that Jesus is painting in this story is not the picture of a mere jewelry store owner. And I don't mean to depreciate owning a jewelry store. Like if you own a jewelry store and you want to step up and go, hey, I just want to tell you that the income is, I'm sure it's amazing. But it's nothing compared to this guy. The picture that he's painting is of one of these rare few in that day pearl merchants who moved and operated and did business in the pearl sheikdoms of Persia and who then supplied all the jewelry stores in a big geographical area with pearls. And incidentally, the pearl in Jesus' day was regarded as the single most valuable object on earth. More than diamonds, more than any other object. These people valued the pearl. So this man has spent a lifetime building a pearl empire, is the point. And in this story, what you're imagining is that he's being invited into the tent of some pearl shake. Who then after, you know, all the ritual formalities and the endless greetings, then invites him further back into his tent, this private chamber, and then by the light of a, of a little lamp... He watches as this pearl shake pulls out a silk purse and then reaches into the silk purse and then gingerly pulls out an enormous pearl of perfect proportions. And what happens in the merchant's heart in that moment? He goes, oh my goodness, that's what I've been looking for all my life. And his heart is filled with joy. Okay, wait a minute. Let's stop. What's the story about? It's about the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. What does the pearl represent? It represents the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Who is Jesus? He's the appraiser. He is the only one qualified to tell us what the value of the kingdom of heaven is worth. And how has he done it so far? Because he's going to do it again. He does it by showing us what these people do in response to finding the treasure. He's like, you want to know what it's worth? It's, it's, it's like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, what? Immediately and joyfully is the idea. Went and sold all that he had. He liquidates his entire pearl empire. They spent a lifetime building. Joyfully. Joyfully. Why? Because he gets this. He, he went and sold all that he had and he, and he bought it. So let's rehearse. We'll go through them again. Treasure is not something that's found by every person, but it's found by some people. And sometimes it's found by people who just stumble upon it. And, and maybe that's your experience. Maybe that'll be your experience today. You know, like your friend has invited you to church like 48 times. And you're like, you know what? It's less painful for me to actually go to church with them once so I can check the box and they can stop asking then it is to say no again. So it's like it's gotten awkward. Now I'm coming. I'm not expecting anything. But maybe you stumble upon it. Maybe you see the beauty of Jesus. You, you start to get a sense that, that there's something of infinite value in this. 
Sometimes it's found by somebody who isn't looking. Sometimes it's found by somebody who's looking for it and they've been looking for it all their life, even if they didn't realize that it was Jesus and his kingdom and his mission and his purpose and his grace and his wisdom and his beauty and his satisfaction and his all of these things that are him that they were looking for. But when they come upon it, they're like, oh my goodness, that's what I've been looking for. I have to have that. And when you find it, man, it fills your heart with joy because you realize, my goodness, this is... This is incredibly valuable. Like, this is really, really significant. But you don't know the value. And so every treasure finder needs someone who is qualified to tell you the value of the treasure that you found. And, and that's what Jesus is doing, not once, but twice with these stories. And what has he said? He's going, he's, guys, this is worth everything you have. This is worth everything you are, and when he opens up your eyes in wonder and you actually behold him and his mission and his beauty and his kingdom and all that is him, you joyfully put everything else on the table. And it doesn't mean you now need to go sell everything you have so you can buy the kingdom. It's not it at all. It means when you're filled with him, you're emptied of everything else. And you're happy about it. It's all at his disposal because none of it has value at all relative to the value of what you've found, which I think tells us something about our hearts. Now, Jesus is coming to us and he's saying, your heart is kind of like this glass. It's clear, right? There's nothing in it, or so you think. It's actually full of air. So if you want to get the air out of the glass, what do you do? I mean, as far as I know, we've got two options. If you're an engineer, you might have nine. I, I'm just going to go with two. It's all I can come up with. So you can seal off the lid. You can attach a pump to the top of the lid. And then you can pump the air out of the glass. But let me ask you, does the glass like that? Does the glass comply with that? Is the glass like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. That won't be painful at all. Let's do no. The glass resists that by its very nature. With everything in the glass, there's this vacuum that's being created and the glass is fighting against empty. It hates empty. It does not want to be empty. So that's one way. The other way is to fill it with something else. So it's full, but now it's full of something else. Something more substantial, really. And as a result, all the air has left. And the glass has put up no fight at all. Glass is kind of jacked. He's like, yeah, I got something better. This is awesome. All of a sudden, I'm of use. I'm of service. There's a, I'm going to take a sip. It's actually helpful. Jesus is like, look, the human heart is like this glass. It's full of stuff. My heart, your heart. And it will not empty itself on its own. Only with great stress and pressure are you going to get stuff out of your heart. It's unsustainable. Listen, your heart will fight tooth and nail against being empty. It hates it. It resents it. It will not have it. But if you fill it with something greater, something more satisfying, something more substantial, something more beautiful, or really someone, your heart's like, oh, I don't care about what I've lost. Look at what I've got. And what Jesus is doing with these stories is he's coming to us and going, hey, <laughs> that's what I'm offering. 
right? I'm offering me to you. And the more full of me you are, the more less of whatever else you've been hanging on to in your heart there is. And honestly, your heart receives it joyfully. What are you hanging on to? What keeps you from being full? Because he's like, listen, in light of me, like even your life, and that's kind of the last thing we'd give up, right? My life, I'm going to hang on to that because, you know, I could make money back again if I lost that. I could. He's like, yeah, you know what? You know what that is compared to, to me? Nothing. Remarkable thought. Back in January of 1956, January 3, a man named Jim Elliott, who was a missionary, graduate of Wheaton College, together with four other missionaries, landed on a small strip of, of land in the jungles of eastern Ecuador. And they landed there to reach the Aka Indians. And here's what they knew about the Aka Indians. They knew that everybody who had tried to make contact with the Aka Indians prior to this moment had been attacked by the Aka Indians consistently. So they were nothing if not consistent. And so for three months before they landed this plane, they flew over the Aka Indians and then they like dropped stuff out of the airplane, you know, that they thought the Aka Indians would like, you know, like some food, you know, Twinkies, you've never had this, you know, like little Debbies, you know, toys, whatever. It's things that they thought would enthrall these people, that would thrill these people, that they'd be grateful for, hoping that, you know, they would realize that, man, I mean, if we're friends with these people in the airplane, whoever the heck they are, they're the attachment to all this good stuff. So if we maintain relationship with them, we're going to get, you know, more of that stuff. Like that's, that's the idea. And then they, they shouted stuff out the airplane in Aka. I don't know. It was just positive. We love you. You know, like I have no idea what they said. Go Aka's, you know, like positive stuff for three months. Then they land January 3, 1956. They built a hut and they waited for the Aka's to come to them. And they did. So a couple days later, on the 6th, uh, three Aka Indians came. So a man and two women. And, you know, they talked to them as best they could. They showed them rubber bands, you know, because they had rubber bands. They had a yo-yo or nine or something, and they showed them what a yo-yo was. You know, they, they blew up balloons and gave them a balloon. You know, you guys get to take a balloon home. They took the man and they brought him on the airplane because he's a dude. He wants to see the machine, you know, like a... He's never seen a flying machine, so they let him take a look around. Like, you see what I mean? And so they're doing everything that they can to say, hey, we're here to bless you. All right, well, two days later, on the 8th, at 4.30, they were supposed to radio into home base and didn't. And home base went, uh-oh. And then they got on a plane and flew over the area, and they didn't see any sign of life. So then they put a rescue team together, landed, and they found four bodies of the five missionaries. Uh, they'd been run through with spears by the Aka Indians, and the fifth was missing and presumed dead. And you go, that's a bummer. Jim was 28, by the way, married with a three-month-old daughter. So you would think that the Aukas would have gotten the message. You know, it's kind of like, hey, man, we just dumped three months worth of stuff on you guys. We're here to be a blessing to you guys. 
Little do you know, but what we're here to bring to you is eternity. We're here to bring the greatest treasure to be found anywhere in the universe, and that is the kingdom of heaven. We're here to bring this to you, and you come and you kill us so that you can take the rest of our rubber bands. Oh, you like the yo-yo? Okay. How about the balloon? Like probably the balloon popped as they're making their way through the jungle. I'm going to go back and get the whole bag. What are you holding on to? Because compared to Christ and his kingdom, I don't care what it is. It's a rubber band. It's a bag of balloons. So Elizabeth Elliot, the the wife of Jim Elliot, uh, an amazing woman, really an incredible person. She and the sister of one of these other guys, uh, the sister's name is Rachel Saint, instead of just packing up and going home, they actually went and they ministered to a tribe that was near the Aucas. So if you took the boat down the rivers and did some walking, you know, you're about a two days journey by their way of traveling from the Aucas. And as they're ministering to this other troop, some woman who's escaped from the Aucas, but whose Aucas comes and they get to know her and they get to learn the language to some degree through her, and they get to explain the gospel to her, and they get to tell her, and then two other ladies come, and these other women about who Jim Elliot and these four other men were, and, and why it is that they came, and that there's a message to be heard, and that it's of eternal value, and so forth. And so then these women, who didn't want to do this, but who valued this more than life, went back to the Aucas and said, hey, here's why these guys were here. The wife of one of these men is the sister of one of these men. And I think they'd be willing to come talk to you, even though you murdered their loved ones. So the AUKUS sent a whole delegation and invited them to live with the AUKUS. Mind you, Elizabeth's daughter at this point was three. And people were going, is this a good idea? (laughs) She's lost dad. Now what if she loses mom? And what if you take her, which by the way she did, and they kill you and then she becomes an Aka woman? That doesn't sound good. She took her three-year-old. Rachel Saint, the other woman, went and they lived with the Aka's for two years. And they put seeds into the blood-sown soil of the Aka's that their loved ones had shed their blood to prepare for the message of the gospel. Wow. Pretty amazing. When the plane landed and they were looking for Jim Elliott and they were looking for his compatriots, uh, they found his diary. And so his last, at least recorded words in the diary, we have which is amazing. I want to read them to you. And I want you to listen for delight. I want you to listen for joy. I want you to listen for fullness and compare it with where you're at right now. I want you to look for satisfaction. And I want you to ask yourself, is anything in the cup of my heart doing this for me? This man who knew, like they had talked about it, if I go do this, I might die. Like Elizabeth said, she felt like she had a premonition that this was it. 
He says this on the day that he was murdered. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? What more indeed? He says, oh, the fullness Pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him and please him. Perhaps, he says, in mercy, he shall give me a host of children, meaning of converts from the Aka people, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set the stars to burning. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments and smile into his eyes. Ah, then not stars nor children shall matter. Only himself. I'll be full of him. Cares what I lose. And then he speaks of his desire for Christ's kingdom, the end game. He says, oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours, which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. I don't know. I think he lived a deprived life. What do you think? Seems like he's still searching. No. He's full. And everything else. Even life itself doesn't matter. The reason we know so much about Jim Elliott and less about the other missionaries is because Elizabeth wrote a book about his life. She's a great writer. She's written lots of books. And she gives to us his most famous statement. You've probably heard it if you've been around the church for a while, but consider it. Jim Elliott said this. He said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep. Let's just stop for a minute and think about that. What is it that right now you have that death will not take from you? What you got? Don't have to think long, do you? He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. So two questions and I'm done. And the the first one, is what is keeping you from fully surrendering to Jesus and the mission of his kingdom? Is it time? You don't want to give up any of your time? Is it money? You're afraid that somebody's going to ask you for money? Is it sex? You sort of like it the way that it is and you don't want anybody messing with that aspect of your life? Is it your reputation? Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? Is it safety? Is it even your life itself? What are you hanging on to? What's holding you back? What keeps Jesus at arm's distance? Because do you know what it is? It's a rubber band. Bottom line, I don't care if it's $100 billion, it's a rubber band, it's a, it's, it's a balloon, it's a yo-yo. It's nothing. And what he's inviting you into is so very much more. Whatever it is, he's like, look, man, be filled with me because I am infinitely more valuable, more precious more satisfying, more beautiful, 
What is keeping you from fully surrendering to Jesus and the mission of his kingdom? And then the second question is, will you take the next step in pursuing Jesus? And that just might mean coming forward after the service and praying with us and and talking with us about what that looks like. It might be coming out on this Thursday night. Alpha, it's 7 o'clock right here in this room. We share a great meal together. We sit around a table with Christians and people who are not Christians. And we just talk it out. We watch this video. It's 25 minutes long. It raises one of the questions of life. This, this week, it is, how can I have faith? That's a great question. And in the safety of that group, meaning we don't argue, we don't pressure, we invite you to kind of air your, your thoughts and your opinions and your skepticisms and whatever it is, your cares, your concerns. Alpha is for people who do not identify as Christians, and so I'd invite you into that. Maybe it's doing personal worship. You get the phone app and you got to, I'm, I'm looking for Jesus every morning and these guys are making it easy for me. Maybe it's the podcast. I'm going to sign up so I can deepen my knowledge. It's coming out Wednesday night to Sam's class, which actually really is going to be awesome. Maybe it's joining a group, a learning group or a community. I don't know what it is. I just know we've got this menu of options that are strategically dedicated to helping you be full of Jesus, to see him and wonder. What is keeping you from fully surrendering to Jesus and the mission of his kingdom? And will you take the next step in pursuing him? Because he's saying, hey, guys, I got an appraisal for you. I'm going to write it up. I'm the man from heaven. I'm the only one who can give this to you. Oh, and by the way, uh, by my very nature, I, I cannot lie. It's worth everything you have. It's worth everything you are. And when you see it, you're full of joy. It's awesome. We pray for you. Father, we thank you for for Jesus, and we thank you for the gift of these two little stories. Lord, we praise you that there is a kingdom, that there is a work afoot. God, that you come and that you, you, you bury treasure in fields and ordain that we find it. Lord, you place longings in our hearts, and then you satisfy them with yourself. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to find the treasure of you today, of your purposes and of your mission. I pray that as we, as we find you, that we'll see you for who you are, that, that finding the treasure of Jesus will fill our hearts with joy. So much so that we willingly offer to you our lives, all that we have and all that we are, and do it in joy knowing that no matter what we have to lose, it's not a have to, it's a whatever. It's a get out of the way. Oh my goodness, it's nothing compared to what we gain. So give us faith for that, we pray in Jesus' name.